Today, we're going to continue in our theme of discipleship, and I thought it best to go to the wisdom literature in the New Testament by the book of James. And I want to invite you to the book of James, chapter 1, as we look under the topic, Faith Without Favoritism. In James, chapter 1, beginning in verse 27, the brother of Jesus, he has these words of wisdom. If we want to be true disciples of Jesus, if we want to have pure religion, James chapter 1, verse 27, he says this, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Well, read it again in James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. You know, every time um, I think of discipleship, this verse comes to mind. The brother of Jesus, the practical wisdom that he gives is that real disciples help the helpless. That makes sense. Easy to understand, hard to practice. Helping the helpless, the widows and the orphans. And then he says this particular phrase that perhaps you've heard it before, to keep yourself unstained or unspotted from the world. And now growing up as a Christian in a Christian home, in a Christian culture, I was always led to believe that what being... What it meant to be unstained or unspotted from the world was simply this. You don't listen to bad music. You don't read bad books. You don't watch bad movies. You don't drink. You don't smoke. You don't engage in premarital sex. And if you follow those things, you will keep yourself unstained, unspotted from the world, and you will have an undefiled religion as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And truth be told, even though I still believe to this day, those things are very good to not practice. I don't want anyone going off and and doing drugs or drinking after this service. Um, This is not what James had in mind when he said to followers of Jesus, keep yourself unspotted or unstained from the world. You know what was on the tip of James's mind, the forefront of his thoughts? Well, it's in chapter 2 of what it really means for disciples of Jesus to keep unspotted or unstained from the world. Look at chapter 2 and let's read a few verses together. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, you, sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you, stand there or sit at my footstool, have you not shown partiality? among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Verse five, listen, my beloved brethren, has God, not, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you 
and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme the noble name by which you are called? Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. We'll pause right there. See, in, in James's mind, when he thought of keeping ourselves as disciples of Jesus from being unspotted or unstained from the world, he says that p disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, should not show partiality. We should not uh, be respecters of persons. We should put it plainly, to put it plainly, we should have faith without favoritism. You might ask yourself the question, what's so wrong with favoritism? I mean, what's so wrong with treating one person better than someone else? What's so wrong with giving one person an opportunity or a, uh, a good opportunity, not based off of their character or their competency, but based off of our personal preference? What's so wrong with showing someone care, more care and concern over another person? I mean, think about it. We have our preferences all the time. We like certain things better than other things and it's just a part of human nature. What's so wrong with valuing one soul above another soul? What's so wrong with favoritism? You know, if you were to ask this question in the business world, you might get a businessman who says, well, favoritism in the corporate world lowers company morale. It breeds resentment among the employees. It causes good employees to leave and those with potential, it stunts their growth. So not only do they perform well, but it stunts the entire growth of the company. And uh, by the way, another word for favoritism is discrimination. And that would open up this company to legal uh, liabilities and heavy lawsuits. That's what the corporate world might tell you what's wrong with favoritism. If you think of it from a parent's perspective, you can ask yourself, what's wrong with favoritism? What's wrong with showing one child more attention than another child? What's wrong with showing, giving more gifts to one child over another child? For setting up standards for one child and disciplinary measures for one child, but not for another child. Uh, licensed uh, clinical social worker Mallory Williams would tell you, well, here's what's wrong. When you show favoritism among your children, it's poor, uh, it has poor results not only for the favored child, but for the unfavored child as well, for both. She says for the unfavored child, they will go through life with low self-esteem. They will experience life feeling rejected. They will grow up to be independent more quickly but they will feel and isolate themselves throughout their life. That's what happens when we, uh, to the unfavored child in favoritism in the family. But she also says for the favorite child, it's bad for them too. 
because they will go through life not knowing how to understand life when things don't go their way. They will have extreme difficulty in failure. They will go through life with a sense of pressure on them and a kind of anxiety for why life isn't going the way they want. And she says, not only that, it will cause their relationships with their siblings to be poor. So she says, for the favored child and for the unfavored child, it's, both, it's bad for both of them because both of them will grow up with higher likelihood of mental health issues like depression and anxiety. So we ask ourselves, what's, what's so wrong with favoritism? Well, it's bad for business. It causes havoc in the home. And it's also no fun at school. Listen to this uh, testimony. It's from this one young student. It's very short, but I, I thought it was interesting. Uh, the student says, I went to a school with two AP math teachers, and they had a daughter at the school. And as AP math teachers, they had oversight over the entire math department at the school. And every year, the math teachers could choose one student to give a special scholarship or grant to. And then with a sarcastic tone, she says, you would never believe who, she, who they gave the grant to. Obviously, their own daughter. You see, favoritism, you can ask what's wrong with it. It's, well, it's bad for business. It causes havoc at the home and it causes school to be no fun for students. But what about the Bible? What does the word of God say with what's so wrong with favoritism? Well, to put it plainly, the Bible calls favoritism sin. To show favoritism is to sin. And then it paints this story. James, the brother of Jesus, paints this story of a, a likely situation that happens at church. Suppose one day a wealthy man comes into the Spencerville Seventh-day Adventist Church. He's good-looking, well-dressed, well-groomed, smells nice, has gold rings. In the Bible times, that's the way of saying has high status and high wealth. And we come and we say to the rich man who comes into our midst, and we say, welcome to the Spencerville Seventh-day Adventist Church. You come, friend. You sit next to me. And oh, let me meet you. Let me introduce you to the pastor. And let me introduce you to the friend. And let me introduce you to the people who are important here in the community. Ah, we're so glad that you're here at the Spencerville Seventh-day Adventist Church. Welcome. And then a poor man comes in. Poorly dressed, smells bad, looks bad, a little sweaty. Maybe he walked into the church. Maybe he's homeless. And we say to him, oh, okay, happy Sabbath. Um, you notice there's these glass rooms over here. You should probably uh, maybe try to think about sitting over there instead. Sounds ridiculous, right? I can tell you, I haven't seen it here, praise God, but I have been to churches where I've seen something very similar take place in real life. Uh, in Canada, uh, there was a very popular person who came into the foyer of the church, uh, buzz in the sanctuary and buzz in the foyer after the service uh, because it was the host of The Bachelor. I don't know if you've heard of The Bachelor before, but it's that show where one man or one woman dates 50 other people for the right reasons. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
Yeah, they came into the church and people were giving him attention and they were noticing him and taking pictures of him like the paparazzi do. And it was a crazy thing to see. It was, it was nice. It was the Bachelor of Canada, but, but still, that was a big deal for us there. Um, and then in the same month, I remember as a youngster, a homeless man coming into the church and being treated as if he had the coronavirus before there was a coronavirus. No eye contact, people keeping their distance. And I thought about this in light of James chapter two. And if you look at the, the passage this morning, pay attention to the language because for the rich man, we're saying, come here. For the poor man, go there. For the rich man, we're saying, sit in a comfortable place. For the poor man, go there in an uncomfortable place. For the rich man, we have the good spot for him, but for the poor man, the worst spot for him. When we look at this, the reason that God does not like favoritism is because for both the rich and the poor, it makes them feel uncomfortable and unwelcome. When you think about it, if you are a famous person or if you have some notoriety in society, or in the church, when you come to worship, you want to be treated like everyone else. You don't come for more popularity. You come because you are like everyone else, a sinner in need of the grace of God. And if you're a homeless person or someone who is poor, you want to come to the place of worship and be treated like everyone else. You don't want your status to prevent you from experiencing a blessing from God because you're just like the rich man in God's eyes. You're a sinner in the need of the grace of God. And so we could ask ourselves, what's so wrong with favoritism? Well, it's bad for business. It causes havoc in the home. It's no good for the school. But for our personal relationships, it ruins our personal relationships that it makes each other, one another, feel uncomfortable whenever we see favoritism, not only for the poor, but for the rich, not only for those with status, but those without. And then the Bible says, what else is wrong with favoritism in verse four? Look at it. James says, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? In the NASB, it says, have you not shown distinction among yourselves? In the NIV, it says, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves? One Bible translator said, have you not caused disunity within the believers of Jesus? You see, the problem with favoritism is that it not only makes us feel uncomfortable and unwelcome, probably like this message might be making us feel right now, but it makes us, it creates an environment where division and disunity can grow. You know, as a dad myself, uh, I try with my children, my wife and I, to really be fair with each and every child, as I'm sure many of you do. Uh, we were blessed as we moved here a year ago to find a home in this crazy market uh, with four bedrooms and uh, all on the same floor. And uh, got a bedroom for each of my children. I got three children and a bedroom for each of them. And I thought what we would do is we'd place each kid in each bedroom because that seemed fair. 
Um, but for whatever reason, that didn't seem fair to them. So they decided that, and with their mom and I decided that they wanted to all share the same bedroom. Six, four, and two. If you go into the room, same beds, same sheets, same bedroom. That's fair. But one of the things, and it's actually worked out really good. The kids are becoming friends. They sleep all right. But one of the things that we, Amy and I, started to do that has caused us trouble is something called co-sleeping. Co-sleeping is where a kid, he can't go to sleep unless if you lay next to them. And the problem that arises almost every single night is that uh, when there's only one parent putting three kids to bed and they'd all like to be laid next to by their parent, it causes warfare. <laughs> because if you lay next to the baby first, it makes the middle one feel upset. If you next, lay next to the middle boy, then the baby's upset. And if you lay next to the older one, then everyone's upset. And so we are wrestling with this warfare of how to be fair when everyone needs to have their mom or dad lay next to them. The happiest time of my kid's life was recently when me, Amy, and their grandmother were all sleeping with them in their beds right before bedtime. That was the only fair moment in their life. But every other time, it causes warfare, sadness, crying, what I would call weeping and gnashing of teeth in the home. Uh, you see, why does God hate favoritism? Because it does for us what it does for our children. It makes them sad. It makes them miserable. It makes their life unpleasant and unwell. And when we as disciples of Jesus Christ choose to greet one person and not treat another person, it creates an environment where bitterness can grow. As one guy said, you know, the church is meant to be a place with family and friends, but when we have favoritism, it becomes a place of family and frenemies, a place where you're polite to one person to their face, but when you get into the car, you gossip about them. And so in the community, it can grow into hatred at best and indifference for others at worst. See, God, he doesn't like favoritism because it ruins our relationships with each other. It makes people feel uncomfortable and unwelcome. And then we ourselves are judges in the place of God. That's what the Bible says in chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. God is giving us a perspective of our judgment compared to his. See, we look at the poor and we say, oh, there is a character flaw with them. There's some kind of addiction. There's something wrong with them. But when God sees the poor, he says, I've chosen the poor to be rich in faith. See, our judgments aren't as good as God. We classify people with the wrong measurements. And when we look at the rich, we say, wow, a good person of good character, of high esteem. But God says, wait, no, wait a second. Isn't it the, poor, the rich who oppress you? Isn't it the rich who use the justice system to be unjust? Isn't it the rich who, who, who blaspheme the name of God? And now listen, this scripture isn't really against the rich or against the poor. It's against our judgment of either of them, of saying to one person, you are of a better quality than another because of your status in society. God's saying, you can't be the judge because your measurements of people, your value that you place on someone is not accurate. 
our calculations of someone's worth and value is grossly miscalculated. And so God says we should not have favoritism because it not only ruins our relationship with each other, but it ruins our relationship with God. Where we remove God from the seat of judge in the world and we replace God as judge with ourselves. You know, at this church, we are so privileged to have people who are leaders in all walks of life, corporate, religious, and even political. And sometimes when we've been so blessed individually or corporately, we might be led to believe that we are more special than everyone else, that our opinions should matter more than everyone else, that our ideas in the body of believers should be given more weight than everyone else. And according to scripture, that is the same type of mentality that started war in heaven between Lucifer and the angels. He was the most beautiful. He was the most wise. And why shouldn't his opinion matter more than everyone else? See, what God is saying is that we cannot judge by our human standards, whether you're poor or rich, whether you have a good profession or no profession. To God, we are all the same. We are children who are sick, who need a savior. And we should not put ourselves in the place of God to judge when God alone is judge. This is what the Bible says. Sometimes it's not easy to swallow. It's not easy to preach. But this is what the Bible says, that God alone is judge. So what's wrong with favoritism? It ruins our relationships with others, makes them feel uncomfortable and unwelcome. It creates division. And it also ruins our relationship with God, where we idolize ourselves over the judge God. And then the Bible says this very particular thing in, in verse 9 that we said already that if you show partiality, if you show favoritism, if you discriminate, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And I've always wondered, because I've read this passage numerous times over my life, is how is showing favoritism breaking the commandments of God? How is, how is, how is showing one person more love and affection over another person breaking the commandments of God. It's such a strange way to put favoritism in the context of the commandments of God. And, and James, in verse 10, he says this thing that Adventists, we like to talk about a lot. It says, if you keep one of the command, if you keep all the commandments, pardon me, but you break one commandment, you're guilty of them all. I mean, as a Seventh-day Adventist pastor, I've used this text a million times, and I said, as a Sabbath keeper, you know, as someone who follows all the Ten Commandments, it's very important that we don't ignore the fourth one. We can't keep the nine commandments and ignore the Sabbath commandment because when you break one, you're guilty of them all. I love this passage for that reason, but that's not what James is saying. He's not talking about the Sabbath. He's not talking about what we like to talk about. He's talking about favoritism. And he says, if you show favoritism, it's as if you are breaking the same law as not murdering, or as murdering, and as committing adultery. But how does that make any sense? Well, I want you to think about it for a moment with me, because this is what I feel like the Spirit of God revealed to me in studying this passage, that every time we commit any sin, 
especially murder, adultery, stealing, lying, or coveting. We are actually enacting or participating in favoritism. Think about it with me for a moment. That every time someone murders, they are favoring one life over another. They are judging one life as worthy to be lived and one life as worthy to be dead or worthy to die. Every time we commit adultery, we're fostering favoritism because we're choosing one person above our spouse, whether it be a man or a woman, over another person. They might make us feel better. They might provide for our needs better, but we're choosing to favor one person over who is our spouse. See, every time we lie, we are, favored to, we are favoring our own imagination over the reality of someone else's situation. And we are fostering our own imagination as more important of a story to be told than the reality of the circumstance. And every time we steal or we covet, we are fostering favoritism that what we want or what we should have is more important than someone else. And see, now that's why I understand why God hates favoritism so much. Because it is one of the roots to all the fruits of evil within the world. We think, oh, I just like this person better than that person. I'm just going to invite this person to my home and ignore this person because it's my personal preference. We don't have a chemistry to each other. But to God, it is one of the grossest and deepest sins that we can commit. And to James, when he thought about how do we keep ourselves unstained from the world, the first thing that came to his mind, he says, it wasn't that you avoid bad movies or bad bad music, or you don't do drugs, which are all good things to avoid. But he says, the first thing that comes to my mind as a people, as disciples of Jesus, is that we should not favor one person over another because it ruins our relationships with each other and it ruins our relationships with God. And so as disciples of Jesus Christ, what are we supposed to do? In light of what we've heard today, what are we supposed to do? The same thing that disciples have been called to do for thousands of years. That we should confess our sin and know that Jesus Christ will forgive us of, of our sins. But not only will he forgive us, but he will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. In light of this, what are we supposed to do? We are supposed to, again, accept the blood of Jesus for the justification of our sin but also ask the Holy Spirit to sanctify us so that we are people in this world who do not show favoritism one to another, but that we treat everyone as the same. You know, I'm so glad this morning that I serve a God who according to Peter and according to Paul was no respecter of persons, who showed no partiality. I'm so glad that Jesus didn't have any favorites. You know, I'm so glad this morning that I serve a God who was criticized for eating with those who were poor and with those who were rich. A, a God who was criticized for eating with the sinner and with the self-righteous. I'm so glad Jesus didn't have favorites. I'm so glad God chose men and women from all walks of life to serve him. The uneducated fisherman and the overeducated Pharisee, the Roman-hating zealot and the Roman-loving uh, tax collector. 
I'm so glad that Jesus did not have any favorites. You know, I'm so glad I serve a God who taught you and me that we should invite those into our homes when it's safe, of course, not only those who can be our friends and our favorites and show us things in return, but who can be a, a person who can invite other people, even if the person can't show any favor, in, uh, favor back to us in return. That we should be a people who invite other people into our homes, even when they have nothing to offer us. I'm so glad Jesus taught us that. I'm so glad Jesus doesn't have any favorites. And you know, this morning, I'm glad that Jesus doesn't have any favorites because he calls everyone, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what sin you've committed, that if you believe in him by faith, he doesn't play any favorites and there's a home for you in heaven. I'm so glad that Jesus doesn't have any favorites. And I'm so glad to be a part of a church that worldwide and locally, we know that God has called every person in every nation, kindred, tongue, and people to be a part of his family, no matter what background or nationality or privilege or prestige they might have, that God invites each of us into his family as a people of God. That means you, that means me, that means the rich, that means the poor. There is a place for you in this church. God, I'm so glad that Jesus doesn't have any favorites. And today, the call for God on your life and mine is simple. It's really this, that we should hold on to our faith in Jesus. We should hold on to our faith in Jesus, but we should let go of our favoritism for one another. God bless you and thank you for listening.